Evening, everyone. And thank you, Mark, and everyone else. Did, uh, did anyone see the news story this week about Mark Colburn? Does, does that name ring a bell with anyone? Stick your hand up if you've, if you've heard that news story this week. No? 37-year-old from Southampton who was found guilty of planning to kill Prince Charles so that Harry, some people are starting to know it, so that Harry would be closer to the throne. And Colburn was labelled, now I'm about to simply quote the BBC News, so could nobody please take offence, okay? He was labelled a ginger extremist. Now I'm not, I'm not going to look in any direction. <laughs> uh, but I mean, he was labelled a ginger extremist who plotted a terror attack on Prince Charles in order that Harry would be king sooner. The reason for, uh, for kind of sharing that rather strange yet serious story is because it illustrates how some people are prepared to do whatever it takes to maneuver themselves or their preferred choice of person into place as the next king or queen, political or world leader. So people have used violence, family feuds, vendettas, elaborate and underhand schemes, even a partiality towards ginger hair. They have all been used down through the centuries to secure or to attempt to secure a new monarch or significant leader. It happens in the 21st century, clearly. It also happened back in the 9th, 10th century BC, as we're about to discover, as we continue our series, Talking the Talk, following King David's life from the point when he became king. And his life is now almost over. Many of you have been following this series. Some of you are new here this evening. You're visiting here, so you're kind of like coming in right at the very end. David, as I say, has been king for 40 years, but his ability to function effectively in that role is at an end. Or so it would seem. Because as we pick up the story from where we left off last week, we find that David is an old man. A very old man according to the text. And he's confined to bed. So if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 1. It's page 334 in the Pew Bibles. And if you can see a copy of God's Word as I kind of go through this, it would be really helpful. Because what I'm simply going to do is kind of track the narrative. I'm going to tell the tale and make some comments as we go along. Now, as, as often is the case, the details that we find in Scripture are, are sometimes surprising and a little uncomfortable. And this opening scene in David's bedroom is no exception. Turns out, David's not only bedridden, but his circulation is shot through. And despite the fact that his servants keep adding more layers, keep handing him and giving him more covers, he can't get warm. And so someone recommends an alternative strategy. Pretty outside of the box thinking from our perspective. But in that culture, maybe not as shocking as it seems. And what they suggest is, let's give him a human hot water bottle. Let's give him a young virgin to keep him warm. But 
not the nearest one available. Let's search throughout the land for a national beauty. And so they find one. And she, Abishag, to quote the text, took care of the king or was of service to the king. Now, before we let our imaginations run wild, look at how this scene ends in verse 4. But the king did not have sex with her. He had no sexual relations with her. Now, there's a couple of different views on what that means. For some people, that's a really positive statement. Here is David, married man, who at one stage in his life had a major problem with lust. Here he is in bed with the most beautiful virgin in all Israel, and he restrains himself. He yields not to temptation. And that's progress. That's highly commendable. Yay, David. Alternatively, and this is a slightly more popular take on what was really happening here, David is unable to have sexual relations with her. This statement, the king has no sexual relations with her, clarifies David's impotence, his loss of virility, which symbolizes the growing reality of David's political impotence. At least it does initially. So the question is, which of those two takes is right? Which is more accurate? Should we admire David or should we feel sorry for David? Where do you stand? Should we applaud him or worry for him? Well, either way, it seems that at the very least we should be concerned. Because as the next verse, verse 5, confirms, moves are afoot behind David's back for the coronation of a new king. Here's what it says. Now Adonijah, son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. I will be king. So the question is, who's Adonijah? Anyone know? Thank you, Dorothea. He is David's oldest surviving son, fourth son born in Hebron. The first son, Amnon. Can anybody remember what happened? Well, first of all, can anyone remember what Amnon did? Raped his half-sister. And then what happened to Amnon? He was murdered by his brother Absalom. And then David's other son, Absalom, what happened to him? Joab stuck three spears through his heart as he was suspended by his hair from a tree. There was a second son, by the way. Amnon, Absalom, second son somewhere in there called Kiliad, who is referred to in 2 Samuel chapter 3, but never heard of again in Scripture. Presumed dead as well. So in one sense, Adonijah, the fourth son, 
probably reckons he's next in line. But the wording of this verse should ring alarm bells. He exalted himself, saying, I will be king, because anyone who exalts themselves in God's eyes, in God's story, is only heading in one direction. As Jesus himself would subsequently clarify, and this is one of those universal facts, truths, period. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Adonijah grabbing hold of the throne for himself and by himself, even with the help of a few key people, this was never going to work out. It was never going to end well. But before we hear what happened, there's a couple of really interesting insights into this fourth son of David, Adonijah, that you find in verse 6. Take a look at it. Here's what it says in verse 6. His father had never rebuked him, asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Throughout David's story, the issue of appearance the issue of physical beauty just keeps coming up. Keeps, it's a reoccurring theme, a recurring theme. But more often than not, those who are described as attractive and striking tend to leave a lot to be desired on the inside. Their characters, their inner qualities often turn out to be a sad disappointment. Saul was described as handsome. Absalom was described as handsome. Adonijah is here described as handsome. But each of those men turned out to be badly flawed. And therefore, we, we are once again reminded of something that the prophet Samuel confirmed right back at the very beginning of this story whenever he first selected David, that although we can be and usually are impressed with outward appearance, God is far more concerned with the heart. Image may be everything, but it's certainly not the main thing. And in a culture that is today obsessed with looks and obsessed with image, this is something we need to grab hold of and remember before it's too late. The second insight regarding Adonijah from verse 6, if you look at it again, relates to his upbringing. David's input as a dad has never been that impressive. How he dealt with or rather didn't deal with his sons whenever they needed to be spoken to, whenever they needed to be disciplined, is another feature of David's story. So for example, whenever Amnon raped his half-sister, it seems David did nothing. David did virtually nothing. And as a result of David doing nothing, Absalom then stepped in and killed his brother. Here, here, Adonijah is clearly someone who's just allowed to do his own thing. He's never disciplined. He's never rebuked. He's never challenged regarding his behavior. Why do you behave the way you do? It says David never asked him that. It's tragic. And although it does tell us something about Adonijah, that he was a bit of a rebellious guy, it also tells us a lot about that, David as a dad. And parenting is no easy task. 
And unfortunately, kids don't come with individual manuals. And being a mum or a dad is complex and it's challenging as well as being incredibly exciting and rewarding. But it often feels like, and I'm speaking personally here, it often feels like you get it wrong far more than you get it right. And most parents beat themselves up from time to time and reckon they should be and could be doing so much better. But you know something that still remains one of the most responsible rules within our society and therefore those who are parents have got to be willing to listen and learn and discover and grow into and in that privileged position. Sadly, it seems that David's parenting skills left a lot to be desired. And as a result, some of his kids, some of his sons became thorns in his flesh. David never rebuked Adonijah and it created a massive problem for the family but also for the nation came across this uh, old Chinese proverb during the week. Seems appropriate. Parents who are afraid to put their foot down usually have children who tread on their toes. Or this even older biblical proverb provides timeless wisdom and hope. This is not a promise. I know that. But it's great advice. Train a child in the, in the way that he should go. And even when is old, he is old, he will not depart from it. So back to this text. Adonijah decides he's going to be king. And so if you read on, you discover that he arranges a ceremony of sorts to seal his coronation. And he has the support of Joab. Those of you who've been following this series should recognize Joab, the one who did kill Absalom, key military person, uh, leader. So Adonijah has Joab's support. He also has Abathar's support, key member of the clergy and the priesthood. But according to verse 8, there were a number of other influential figures who weren't so supportive, and we'll come back to them in a minute. Anyway, Adonijah invites all it says of the current royal officials, plus, here's a really interesting thing, he invites all of David's sons, i.e. all of his brothers, to his succession party. But there's one notable exception. Look at the end of verse 10. But he did not invite his brother Solomon. Now, before we read on, let me show you a bit of David's family tree. I hope this might be helpful. Solomon was David's 10th son. He had six sons when he was in Hebron, born to six different wives, including Adonijah and Absalom. And then David had four sons with Bathsheba. Although some of you may remember, he also had a son or a child with Bathsheba outside of marriage who died whenever they were just a week old. But Solomon was Bathsheba's fourth boy. Incidentally, David had 19 named sons with his wives and a number of unnamed sons with his concubines. Back to the text. Because back into David's story at this point walks two key characters who haven't featured since 2 Samuel chapter 7, since the moment of Solomon's birth. But here and now, 1 Kings won this critical moment in history. David is effectively on his deathbed these two key characters walk back into David's life. 
without looking, does anyone know who the two key characters are? Haven't been about since 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan, Mary, thank you. Nathan and Bathsheba. Haven't been about for chapters, for years. They appear now. And so Nathan the prophet, because you remember if you were here last week, David seemed to have a new spokesperson into his life called Gad. But anyway, Nathan the prophet alerts Bathsheba and says, listen, Adonijah has become king and David knows nothing about it. And so Nathan urges Bathsheba because her life and her son's life depend on it to go and see David. Please, Bathsheba, go and see your husband. And I want you to ask him a rather direct and a rather loaded question. Look at verse 13. Here's what Nathan says to Bathsheba. Go in to King David and say to him, my lord the king, did you not swear to me your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me and he will sit in my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? Now, Whether David did actually swear to this is a bit of a moot point. There's no explicit record of it in the narrative to date. Although later on, as we'll see, David does express it, but that's later on. But what is clear from, again, the backstory is that at the time of Solomon's birth, the Lord declared, this kid is special. So let's go back, it'll be on the screen, to 2 Samuel 12, Solomon's birth. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. That's following the death of their little weak-year-old child. David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. And she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, which means loved of the Lord. So Solomon was definitely significant in God's eyes and destined for great things. So back to the story, Nathan encourages Bathsheba, go and speak to David. But you know what? See at a particular point in your conversation with your husband, I'll come into the room I'll back up what you've been saying. I'll confirm your words. And so, let's pick up the story at verse 15. And we'll stand at the stage to keep you with me and for the public reading of God's word. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 15. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room where Abishag the Shunammite was attending him. I want you to try to imagine what that must have felt like for Bathsheba to walk into the room, see this beautiful young virgin lying with her husband. Bathsheba Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. What is it you want? The king asked. And Bathsheba said to him, my Lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant, by the Lord your God, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord the king, you don't know anything about it. 
He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle and fatted calves and sheep, and he has invited all the king's sons, Abathar, the priest, and Joab, the commander of the army, but he has not invited Solomon, your servant. My lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord, the king, has led the rest with his ancestors, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals." While she was still speaking, Nathan arrived. And the king was told, Nathan the prophet is here. So he went before the king and bowed with his face to the ground. Nathan said, have you, my lord the king, declared that Adonijah shall be king after you and that he will sit on your throne? Today he's gone down and sacrificed great numbers of cattle and fatted calves and sheep. And he's invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abathar the priest At this very moment, they are eating and drinking with him, saying, Long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaniah, son of Jehoiadiah, and your servant Solomon, he did not invite. Is this something my lord the king has done without letting his servants know who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Grab a seat. And you see, right at the beginning of this chapter and up to now, David comes across as he's spent. David's done. David's inactive. But based on two critical speeches from two important people in his life, he's awakened. And if we read on and you look on, he becomes decisive. He takes action. He exercises leadership. And so at this point in time, having heard from Bathsheba, having heard from Nathan, he confirms, do you know something? No, Solomon is going to succeed me. And then David starts dishing out the orders to make this happen. And so what does David say? He says, Solomon is to travel to his enthronement on my own mule. He's going to arrive in in the king's own limo, so to speak. And that's going to send out a very strong message. And then Zadok, the priest, who wasn't invited to Adonijah's party, and Nathan, the prophet, who wasn't invited to Adonijah's party, they're going to anoint Solomon as king over all Israel. And then what I want to happen is I want a trumpet to be blown, and I want everyone to cry out, long live not King Adonijah, but long live King Solomon. Notice from verse 35 as well, that what David actually declares is that Solomon is going to be king in his place. Now that is more, far more, way more than Nathan or Bathsheba ever imagined. They thought this is all going to happen after David eventually dies. But no, here is David now saying, while I'm still alive, Solomon is going to succeed me and go on to the throne. Benaniah then, look at this, steps forward. And after David has said this, he says, amen. And what does amen mean? So be it. And then he follows it up with the prayer, may the Lord, the God of David, declare it. Or in some of your translations, it will say, may the Lord ordain it. Which we assume, given, as we all know, that Solomon did become king, is a prayer that is answered. I'll come back to that. Don't worry, we're near done. Everything then happens. Read on here with me. Everything happens just as David instructed. And at the end of it, 
a huge celebration breaks out. But look at what happens. What is the effect? The earth shakes. The ground reverberates. The aftershocks are felt down the road or wherever Adonijah and his guests are having their own celebration. They hear this massive party going on now. And they wonder, what, what's that? And Joab particularly, the military commander, the guy who's been so intricate in this whole story, he hears it. He goes, what, what's going on? In runs Jonathan. Now, not, not David's best friend. But in runs Jonathan, who is Abathar the priest's son, to confirm the devastating news. Talk about wrecking a party. The devastating news that David has in fact just up the road made Solomon king. And he fills the party in with all the details of what has happened. And then the guests, it says in verse 49, don't even wait for Adonijah's reaction. Instead, they run. They go their separate ways in a state of panic, again is what some translations say, trembling with fear. But what about Adonijah? He's now left there. Everyone's gone. He's heard the news. His dad has made Solomon king. What's going to happen to him? The self-promotion didn't work. Self-exaltation has failed. Now it's time for the humbling process to begin. And if you look at verse 50, we find, him for, we find him running for refuge to the altar. And it says he grabbed hold of the horns of the altar. Now in the future, still happens today, many people run to a temple, a church or whatever to find refuge. It's a wee bit like that. Here is Adonijah going to the altar, grabbing hold of the horns, pleading for his life, and then we hear the new king's famous first words. 52. If he shows himself to be worthy, says Solomon, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. What I want you to notice about that is that's an incredibly merciful statement, but it's not naive. These are wise words from a man who would later become renowned for his wisdom. If Adonijah backs down, says Solomon, if he takes the hit on the chin, if he walks away and learns his lesson, then everything's going to be fine. But you know something? See if he steps out of line. See if he tries to grab hold of anything again that's not his. He's going to be taken out. And the chapter finishes with Adonijah being sent home with his tail between his legs. And so it's a fascinating, I hope you found it, a fascinating part of the story. But it's such an important one. Because at the beginning, at least I, I hope you are, at the beginning, you can't help, if you've been following this series, at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 1, you can't help but feel sorry for David, who comes across as this rather now pathetic figure, a shadow of his former self, huddled up in bed, 
shivering, can't get warm, impotent. But by the end of this chapter, despite his old age, despite his weakness, despite his infirmity, he, with the help of others, is still leading, still calling the shots, still making major decisions. A true hero, man after God's own heart, right to the end. It's also an episode in the story full of scheming and conspiracy. That's what this chapter is just packed with. Adonijah was at it. Joab was at it. Abathar was at it. You could even argue Nathan was at it. Bathsheba was at it. And yet, in and through all the various competing purposes and conniving and cunning ways, here's the thing. The purpose of God is being fulfilled. The purpose of God is being, God doesn't appear in this chapter that much. He's referred to, he's mentioned, he doesn't speak, but ultimately God is at work accomplishing and carrying out his will. Some of the characters, yes, appear to be doing their best to align their purposes with God. So David, in taking leadership and confirming that Solomon will be king, he's trying to align his purposes with the will of God. You could even say Benaiah, son of Jedidiah, is also aligning his purposes with the will of God, saying, amen, so be it. May the Lord declare it. May the Lord ordain it. And you know, quite honestly, this is often as much as we can do. That in the midst of competing human schemes and plots and agendas, we endeavor to align our will and our purpose with that of God. Believing, knowing, trusting that ultimately God will accomplish those. And so the challenge for us is how can we better align ourselves and our lives with the will and purpose of God? And in two weeks, we're going to finish this series. And we are going to hear David's very famous last words. But until then, I hope and pray we will all remember four things. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. That's just the way it works in God's kingdom. That God looks beyond the exterior and he sees, right this evening, he sees and he cares about the state of every single heart. And parenting requires godly wisdom, especially whenever we need to challenge our kids. And finally, I encourage each of you to go away from here and to continue to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Your will be done, God, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. So be it. May it be so, Lord.